This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. This week's sermon is by Scott Cunningham and is from the 12th Sunday after Pentecost. So this summer I am celebrating a particular milestone, and that, that is that I have been off of all social media for one whole year. Yeah, all right. Uh, I haven't grammed, snapped, poked, tweeted, nothing. Uh, don't even know if those are real things, but uh, anyways, I... It's not that social media is a bad thing. Rez has every social media account possible, I think. But I just needed a break, and I needed a break for two reasons. First, I was really tired of seeing what random people I went to high school with were eating for dinner. You know what I mean? It's just like, I don't really need to know that in my life. But second, and most importantly, I just became overwhelmed with the social media cacophony and wars and internet smearing. I I don't think I need to really prove that. I feel like most of us probably know that. I think we've reached a point where a lot of ways that we use the internet has become a 21st, manifest, 21st century manifestation of tarring and feathering. If you guys remember that from the history books. We all sit safely behind our computers and we wait for somebody somewhere to mess up, to breach our kind of cultural systems and assumptions, and then we drag them into the middle of the international public eye and just heap it on, humiliate them. And we go after each other because the core of our current culture is polarized. When anything happens, it hits the internet in about 20 seconds, and as one of my friends said who goes to this church, we all feel compelled to just run to a side and just start screaming at each other. You're either red or blue. You're either painted as somebody who hate cops or you're a racist. You get the point. This is only going to increase as we head towards November, right? And the the rifts in our church, the rifts in culture, the rifts everywhere are just going to go wider and wider. But this isn't just about politics. Politicians pander to what is already stewing in the culture, and that is a polarized culture at war. What on earth is the church supposed to do in that situation? If you think about it, for the church to work its way through the crowd into that cacophony and to bring everybody down to a hush and speak something, what word do we have that we're to speak? Of what message in that situation, in today's situation, are we bearers? Paul, one of the early Christian apostles, uh, lived during a similar time of very polarized culture. It's culture at war, and I'm fascinated by what he urges us to speak. So grab your your Bible or your bulletin and look with me. Go to verse 22 in 1 Corinthians 1. I'll give you a second. Starting in verse 22. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God, and the wisdom of God. He says, but we preach Christ crucified. And as it was in his day, so the Bible wants to teach us this morning that it is the word we must preach and cling to in an age of polarization. That is literally my whole sermon. It's just that really condensed idea, that that one, those few verses. So this morning, all we're going to do is slow down and unpack that because there's a lot there. Uh, But I want to spend some time talking about what was going on in Paul's day, so what's going on with Jews and Greeks, 
Uh, And then why for us, as for him, we preach Christ crucified. Um, You may notice in your bulletin, this is a two-part sermon series. So this week, we're going to be thinking about verses 18 to 25 and kind of what that looks like to preach that to the world on kind of a big picture scale. And next week, we're going to go on throughout the rest of the passage and think about what it means to be just as diligent to speak that word, Christ crucified, to ourselves. So what was happening when this was written? What's going on in Paul's day? You notice that Paul kind of divides his world into Jews and Greeks. And that kind of represents two worlds of the New Testament. So in one corner over here, you have the Jews. They represent the people and culture of the Old Testament. They are God's chosen people. The Jews are basically, in Paul's day, the religious establishment. We're talking deep religious, ethnic, national history. These people are preservationists. And they're under Roman rule, so they long to be liberated. So when Paul says that Jews demand signs, he's, he's referencing this gut reflex of people. When somebody comes to a Jew and says that they're from God, they would say, sure, what do you got? And they're looking for a new Messiah, which translate, translated into Greek means Christ, the new Moses to come in power and do something to liberate them. Jews demand signs. The Greeks in this corner, or non-Jews basically, represent the complete opposite. We're talking about the Greco-Roman world. I mean, this is like a hodgepodge of tons of different histories and religions and cultures. It's a mishmash, and they're very progressive, right? They're open, uh, open concepts of beliefs and morality and that stuff. You just got to pay a tax to Caesar at the end of the day, and we're good. So these guys are forward-looking, and in a different way than the, the Jews, exalt people of prestige, Let's just say letters after your name really matter. So when you come into a Greek place and you got something to say, they're going to go, who'd you study with? Are you published? Well-received by critics? Do you read Augustine in Latin or are you a peasant and you read him in English? So that's kind of what Paul's talking about when he says Greeks seek wisdom. So you have these two different worlds with completely different values and perspectives And the New Testament engages both. The stories of Jesus in the Gospels take place in basically rural ancient Palestine. So where all the Jews were. That would be like Jesus growing up and doing ministry in like modern day rural Bible Belt America. But then after Jesus' death and resurrection, the church expands into the Greco-Roman world. So Corinth is actually the city where, where this was written that has some serious economic and cultural clout. Uh, And also, it was known as a party town because apparently they threw really good parties. So think of Corinth as like San Fran, modern-day San Francisco, right? So think about this for a second. At the time when Paul wrote this, which is to a new church in basically ancient San Francisco, both of these types of people are in it. How bizarre would that be? That would be like having a new church and a guy pulls up who's grown up his whole life as a, as a good old Baptist in Meridian, Mississippi or something with a huge, awesome, gas-guzzling Chevy Silverado. Enormous AT tires, NRA bumper sticker on the back, one of those awesome decals of like the cowboy kneeling down at the cross with his horse. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? There's not many of those up here, but in the South, they're everywhere. It can be a motorcycle, a horse, that guy. And right beside him, a woman pulls up in a Tesla with California plates, a coexist bumper sticker, and steps out wearing a PETA t-shirt. And then they both head into the same church. 
That is, it literally would have been no less crazy for that to happen. With that in mind, look back at your bulletin with me. Verse 22. Starting in verse 22. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. What is he getting at? Notice, he doesn't say we preach Christianity. He doesn't even say we preach love or we preach peace or even we preach Jesus. He says something much more tactile, specific, and scandalous, and that is we preach Christ crucified. Growing up, I always thought Christ was Jesus' last name, but come to find out, it's actually not. Uh, Christ just means Messiah in Greek, right? And crucifixion is like the most horrific form of Roman public execution. So it'd be like saying amidst today's upcoming election, Democrats want this and Republicans want this, but we preach that our leader was executed on the electric chair. It would have been even probably crazier than that sounding to them, which is exactly why Paul, right after he says that, goes, and by the way, Jews cannot wrap their head around that, and Greeks just think it's the most ridiculous thing in the world. So there is so much we could say about this right now. That's been the hardest part for me is like, oh man, we're talking about the cross here. This is what we're all about. But I think Paul is really trying to drive home one thing and there are two different sides of the same coin. So it is this, and we're gonna hang out here for a second and and unpack this because this is really the center of the passage. Christ crucified, or the word of the cross, as he calls it in verse 18, belongs to no tribe or party, and yet it is for every tribe and party. It offends and challenges everyone to each in different ways, and yet it is salvation for everyone. Okay, that's it. So we're going to spend a little time just kind of unpacking that, and of course, we're going to start by doing that with a little Bob Dylan history lesson which is what you all thought the next thing we're going to do. Dylan started out um, as this young kid who became the hero of the 60s acoustic folk movement. You know the songs? He was the darling of all hippies. He was labeled the spokesperson of an entire generation. We don't have anybody like that. And if Justin Bieber is our spokesperson, then our culture is worse off than all of us ever knew. But, so he's this acoustic folk hippie guy. But then in 1965, in a seminal moment in rock history, Dylan steps onto the Newport Jazz Festival stage with an electric guitar. He went electric, and when he did, he made all of the folk establishment, which sounds like a paradox, uh, really, really angry because he had, like, abandoned their movement. And then he became the darling of rock counterculture. But later on, he did something even crazier And he became a self-proclaimed born-again Christian, which made both hippies and rock stars mad because that is definitely not rock and roll. I mean, he was in a Keith Green record, for goodness sakes. So you want to go back to Egypt? Anybody? So then all the Christian musicians were like, oh my gosh, Dylan's a Christian. And then they all kind of accepted him into the fold. And then he eventually evaded that. In 2004, he actually did something that made everybody mad and went on to an ad for a not-so-reputable women's clothing company, and then everybody was hacked. 
And then they said, basically, you know, you've sold out. What are you doing? You're Bob Dylan. And his response was classic. He just said, I didn't know I wasn't supposed to do that. The point being, at every point in Dylan's career, there was some group of people with their own agendas and the desires who tried to control his talent and brand him for their cause. In a similar way, when Jesus shows up on the scene, if you kind of remember the Gospels, if you've read read them, everybody's checking him out and testing him to see whose team he's on. Multiple different factions within the Jews are kind of testing him and asking him these questions to see, are you with us? Are you against us? And even when he's talking to Pilate, you can kind of feel him trying to pin him down. Like, who is this guy? But Jesus resisted them, and instead of becoming a part of their movements, he went to the cross. He ruffled the feathers of both the religious establishment and the Gentile rulers. You see, all of us have a cultural grid through which we test everything. Every hashtag or movement today has one. We watch a movie, we hear a sermon, you're listening to my sermon, we scroll through somebody's posts on, me, on social media, and we look at them through our grid and see where they stand. We try to pin them down. And if they don't align with our culturally curated grid, we reject it. If it doesn't fit, we reject it. All of us do this. There's, there's no escape. The picture Paul is, Paul is painting here is that if you come to the cross with your grid, one of two things will happen. Either, on the one hand, you will try and force it to fit into your grid, and when it doesn't, you'll think it is foolishness and weakness and walk away. Or, by the saving grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, you will have your grid absolutely shattered by the Lamb who was slain, and it will flip everything on its head. One or the other is going to bend, the gospel or your grid. Now, if you think about it, Christianity as a word or an idea is actually pretty malleable. People use Christianity and religion all the time and can manipulate it and kind of bring it to be a part of their, their cause. Same goes for love or peace or justice or stuff like that. But Christ crucified suffers no such treatment. It's a man dying on the cross. And Paul is saying that God made it that way specifically so that no one could lay claim to it. So if you think about the passion, Jews stand before the cross and hurl abuses at Jesus and say, save yourself, this guy is weak. And Gentiles and Greeks throughout the New Testament continue to think that Christians are just insane because they believe in this leader who was killed and executed by Rome. That's like the complete opposite of everything Rome was about. Instead of exalting himself, Jesus humbled himself. He went down instead of up. Instead of taking the form of prestige and flexing his muscles, he took the form of shame, foolishness, and defeat. So that's one side of the coin. The cross fits through nobody's grid. But on the other side, to those who are called, like the passage says, it is the power and wisdom of God for everybody, Jew and Greek. And that's what's so amazing. Think about the passion again, even at the cross, as people are looking by those people who are mocking and laughing at Jesus, you have the Roman centurion who believes and believing Jews, and they all saw that this was the sign. This actually was the power and wisdom of God. These were the people who had their grid smashed. 
So the cross belongs to no tribe or party, and yet it is for every tribe and party. It offends and challenges everyone, and yet it is what everyone needs. Paul is reframing this entire debate, and the cross is purposefully set apart. He's reminding this divided church that if we aren't careful, our center of gravity will all too easily shift from that, from Christ crucified, and pivot towards becoming entangled in the same pursuits and movements as the world, but just under a Christian banner. And in fact, in 1 Corinthians, Paul goes on to talk about a lot. He talks about sexuality, family, unity and diversity, all kinds of stuff. You see, to preach Christ crucified does not mean you can't engage in any other issues or governments or anything like that, but he starts here because those things are meant to be understood through the grid of the cross. What is love? What is peace? Justice? How do we understand those things? We take them and we look at this man dying for the sake of the world. That's how we understand that. What is sexuality, unity, and diversity? We look to the cross. Okay, that was a lot. Let's regroup for a second and and think about this. Now that we know what was happening and what Paul is talking about when he's saying Jews demand signs, Greeks, they seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. I've got three things of why for Paul and for us, we must cling to Christ crucified in an age of polarization. I'm sorry, they don't rhyme. It's not alliteration. And yet they do kind of all sound the same. It's three, it is the basis of. So first, we must preach Christ crucified because it is the basis of our identity. It's the basis of our identity. Paul, the guy who wrote this, writes elsewhere, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And later in the same book, he says this, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's amazing. It is the word of the cross that shatters our grid, dislodges us from any other pre-existing loyalty or identity. And what is more, it doesn't just break it down, but it rebuilds and recreates us on the foundation of Christ crucified. Yes, we're crucified with him, but we're raised to new life with him. The way of the cross, as the Anglican liturgy says, becomes the way of life. And just a point about that, something I've been thinking about this week is that getting that new identity does not happen once and then it's done. Grids or tribes or parties or other loyalties grow up like weeds in our heart. And that is why we all need to continually come back to the cross to have our grids our tribes, our polarization continually challenged by Christ crucified each day, week, year. And hopefully it is clear by now that everybody, all of us need to have that happen. It's not just those people out there who need to wise up and come and sit before the cross. We all do too. And if you're a consistent church going Christian, it doesn't mean you're safe. It was actually hardest for people in the Bible who were religious to have their grid smashed because to them it was divinely sanctioned. They were churchgoers. So that goes for conservatives, liberals, Jews, Greeks, everybody. Practically speaking, just about this being a part of your identity, when you're by the water cooler or you're online, 
I think we have to remember as God's people that our first allegiance is not to any other tribe or party. It is Christ crucified. That is what we preach. It's our grid. It's our benchmark. It's our identity. So that's number one. Number two. Second, it is the basis of our unity. Because the word of the cross transcends party lines, it is the only thing that has the capacity to unify everybody. Jews, Greeks, NRA members, PETA members, everybody. When people come before the lamb who is slain and bow down before him, their grid is smashed and they're given a new identity. That's what we just talked about. But when they look to their right and to their left, they're going to see people from all over the place who have done the same thing. You're going to find people from Africa, Mexico, Syria, San Francisco, Meridian, Mississippi, Wheaton, Illinois. When Jesus smashes our grids, he is literally tearing down the very things that divide us and therefore unifies us. So listen to this other passage from the book of Ephesians. This is talking about how Gentiles, Greeks, have been made one with Jews under the cross. He says this, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. I feel like you could call lots of social media spaces right now a dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Um, During a week that Flando Castile and Alton Sterling were shot, and then shortly afterwards the police officers in Dallas, the city of Dallas was in mourning and was divided. My folks lived there, so they told me. Uh, But something fascinating happened. The government of Dallas actually turned to white and black Christian ministers and said, you guys have the spotlight. We need you guys to step up and to lead unifying and healing our city. And the night after that that had happened, they held a worship service with very prominent black and white pastors that you guys would probably know and a bunch of black and white Christians. And they all got together and knelt down before the lamb who was slain and prayed for healing and unity. Praying that others will wise up and come over to your side doesn't unify, right? We know that. Yelling as loud as we can into the cacophony does not unify. Jesus asks us to pick up our cross and follow him. And in order to do that, we actually have to give up our allegiances and we have to step down. And that unifies as everybody does the same thing. Just as a a practical application, again, when you're with your friends, when you are in your family, you're at dinner conversations, all kinds of stuff, I think we need to remember that and preach that it is only the cross that brings true unity and that it's not us. All of us have to be unified around the cross. Our first tribe, our first people are our brothers and sisters in Christ, and they're all over the place. So third, and most importantly, we must preach Christ crucified because it is the basis of God's salvation. Part of the reason why we're all so divided is because we're all split on what we strongly believe our world needs. And it's not from a bad place. All of us are really wanting to see the world healed and go forward and be fixed and all kinds of stuff. And if you listen to politicians stump, that is literally what, are they, what they are pandering to. 
you know, the world's all going to end and we're going to move to Canada and Canada's going to be super over, overpopulated. Unfortunately, we're caught up in that despair. And I want to contend with uh, the force of all conviction and encouragement this morning that our despair over the state of the world is revealing an idolatrous, misplaced faith in our hearts. Christians do not despair. Governments and countries come and go. They are like mist in the grand scheme of the world. But chaos on earth is not chaos in heaven. And that heavenly kingdom, which cannot be shaken, has come on earth, on, it, on earth as it is in heaven, and it is founded on the cornerstone of the cross. Amen? Fear not. So at the same time that we should not despair when things which cannot save look like they cannot save, we must preach Christ crucified as the power and wisdom of God because it's the basis of God's salvation. It's not just another option. It is the only thing under heaven which can save. Um, practically here, I, I think something that I've been thinking about is what it means to dial back as God's people, violent uh, panic and kind of despair and chaos over the state of the world and offer uh, a calm confidence in, in the cross. Um, we've been here before. History has shown this time and time again. And as Christians, that is a, a deep opportunity for us to offer healing uh, and salvation to a world in need because we believe in something that cannot be shaken. So I think that's something that we can just enter into all of our different conversations. So we must preach the word of the cross during our age of polarization because it is the basis of our identity, it's the basis of our unity, and it's the basis of God's salvation. And remember, Christ crucified is not a passive word. It actually challenges and goes after all other forms of identity, unity, and salvation. If you look at verses 19 to 21, it talks about how God thwarts, he destroys the wisdom and power of the world. Where's the debater? Where's the scribe? Paul says. And if that's going to happen, we must expect that when people can't fit a dying man on a cross into their grid, they're going to think it and us who proclaim it are wise and foolish. I just think we need to be very careful that in an age of polarization, we don't equate acceptance with truth. Jesus was dragged into the middle of the cacophony and executed on a cross by Jews and Greeks. Paul was too. He was beaten multiple times by Jews and by Greeks and eventually was executed. This message will get you tar and feathered. So the, the message of Christ crucified has a serrated edge and it's our job to proclaim it. Now that is with all humility and um, compassion and clarity but we must preach it. That's what Paul's saying. And it's God's job to save and convict. So to close, I, I just want to encourage us with a, a comforting thought. The world was deeply, deeply divided uh, and volatile during Paul's day and during Jesus' day. That's very clear. And you know what? It has been deeply divided and volatile ever since. Be encouraged that 2016 is not in any way, shape, or form an exception. It's not an exception. And be encouraged that today the cross is as sharp 
and life-giving as it has ever been. It is still the only word which can save, unify, and recreate us in light of the cross. And that means, brothers and sisters, this is business as usual. This is meat and potatoes for the church. We are the people who preach Christ crucified in all ages of all polarization. If you're visiting here and you're not a Christian, uh, I'm so glad you're here. Come find me after the service if you have any questions about all this stuff. But I I just want you to know that 2,000 years ago, like we just said, there was this culture that was absolutely at war and God himself took on flesh in Jesus Christ and came into the middle of it and died for the sake of that polarized world and for ours, for you and for me. Every single one of those governments during Paul's day have crumpled. They're nowhere. They're rusting in museums. But the cross still stands. People have been preaching this word and being saved by it, by the power of God and by his Holy Spirit for millennia, and it has gone nowhere. And there have been multiple different types of polarized worlds and governments and things being said and things being thrown at it. And it has continued to be the rock and the cornerstone of God's kingdom and of his salvation. And there is nothing else in this world that can save. I think Jesus would say this morning, come and see. What we're about as a church is trying to gather around the cross and be a people that have our grid smashed and who have our lives recreated and rebuilt on the cornerstone of the cross. Next week, we're going to think about not just what the word is. And again, this sermon has been kind of uh, macro in scale. Like I said, this is about what word we preach to the world. Next week, Paul goes on, if you read this passage, and I would encourage you to kind of read it, maybe think about it this week before next week. But it gets a lot more personal. It's not just what the word is. It's how do we preach it? What does it mean not just to say the words? I'll give you a little hint. The answer is not to get on social media and be just as loud as everybody else, but just insert Christ crucified into your hashtag. It's much more comprehensive than that. We actually have to embody the cross where we believe Christ crucified. And the same things that we're talking about, all of us have to do on a deep fundamental level. We are humbled by the humility of Jesus and it absolutely transforms our tone, what we say, how we act, so that we smell the aroma we give off smells like the cross. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.